quid pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though. About yourself. Quid pro quo. Yes or no? Yes or no, Clarice? Poor little Catherine is waiting. Go, Doctor. What is your worst memory of childhood? Death of my father. Tell me about it and don't lie or I'll know. He was a town marshal and one night he surprised two burglars coming out of the back of a drugstore. They shot him. Was he killed outright? No, he was very strong. He lasted more than a month. My mother died when I was very young, so... My father had become the whole world to me, and uh, when he left me, I had nothing. I was ten years old. You're very frank, Clarice. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Hello, Clarice, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that pairs perfectly with some fava beans and a nice key ante. <laughs> God, that sounded gross. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host whose pulse never gets above 85, even when I eat your tongue. (laughs) I am Seth, the host most likely to eat the rude. I don't even understand that one. (laughs) I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to use Evian skin cream, and sometimes I wear a layer de tel, but not today. (laughs) And I'm Mike, the guest host most likely to be kidnapped, thrown into the back of a van while a kitty cat impassively, perhaps bemusedly, looks on. (laughs) Is there a specific cat that that might be, or just any cat? Yeah, just any. You know, cats don't like me. That cat could have helped her. It could have meowed. Yeah, the cat knew, but it said not. (laughs) See something, say nothing. That's the (laughs) Mm -hmm. way of the cats. The lambs don't help you, the cats don't help you. The silence of the cats, really. Mm. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) This episode is part two of our discussion looking back at the Academy Awards for the movies of 1991. Our last episode was spent in hot pursuit of the best original screenplay winner, Thelma and Louise. And in this episode, we'll be anything but silent about the best adapted screenplay winner, The Silence of the Lambs, which also won a ton of other major awards, including Best Picture. It won all of them, Chris. (laughs) Not like every single Oscar. Didn't win everything. (laughs) Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel Prize for math. Yes. It it also has a purple heart. (laughs) Yep. That checks out. That checks out. So we're going to talk about the legendary serial killer thriller. Oh, that's that's a mouthful. (laughs) And a little more about the Oscar ceremony it swept at large. So I hope you brought your appetite because this is some very fine dining we're offering up in this episode. Bon appetit.
So uh, yes, the voice that you are hearing is our guest for this episode, uh, returning offender Mike. Returning champion. <laughs> I like returning offender. <laughs> that's fine. Repeat offender. Repeat, repeat yes. offender. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, he has previously been on the podcast to talk about Nintendo and Ninja Turtles, so this is his first uh, grown-up episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you finally graduated into uh, talking about uh, adult movies. Gee, thanks, Mister. <laughs> We're going to need you to provide uh, a bibliography and a, and a list of the resources you consulted for this. Uh, this will be on your final oh, record. Man. Do I need to make citations? Do I need a references uh, yes. page? An MLA format, please. I just graded 127-page essays. I am done with the MLA. Oof. Okay, then I, I have to tell you I was lying. There will be no quizzes or tests or grades. Great. Uh, welcome back, Mike. Th- hey, welcome thank back. you. It's so n- I feel so welcome. Feels nice. We'll change that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when we decided to do Silence of the Lambs as uh, one of our episodes, I was just like, well, Mike should be a guest, A, because he lives with me, and it's very hard <laughs> to have guests otherwise unless you are living with the person <laughs> in these times. And uh, two or B, which one did I say? You one said A, I think. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. And two, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs is your favorite movie, Mike. It, yeah, for years and years, you know, people ask me, like, oh, what's your top five? Like, all right, here's the top five. Paddington 2, <laughs> Paddington 1, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs, Scott Pilgrim, Mad Max Fury Road. But when I met you before any of those movies were a thing, your favorite movie for decades was Silence of the Lambs. For, for yeah, like at that point in my mid-20s when I wanted to feel like I was impressing people, I'd be like, oh yeah, Silence of the Lambs. It's, it, it is absolutely one of my favorite movies. And I think the first movie you and I saw together was Scott Pilgrim. So that, was, that immediately changed the, the lineup. <laughs> well, clearly the Silence of the Lambs needs no introduction. It is one of the most iconic films ever. We said that about Thelma and Louise in our last episode, too. And this one, even more so. The rare film, I think, that's a huge hit at the box office with critics and at the Oscars. Not to spoil our opinions on this film, but I feel like this is a treat we've been saving. <laughs> you know, doing this podcast for more than four years now. It's one of those movies that, you know, I knew we had to cover eventually, and I knew that we would, unless, you know, disaster befell us or something. But it had to be the right moment. And I think this is almost the right moment. But first, <laughs> a ham handed segue into my questionnaire. <laughs> uh, I have a question for you guys. I'd like to share something about myself in exchange for some information about you. Oh, quid pro quo, Christopher? Yes or no. My question is, what wine would you pair with a census taker's liver? <sighs> I, I mean, I, I am a census taker, <laughs> so this worries me. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I would say a Nebbiolo would be very good. Yeah, honestly, I would say any very bold red wines. Wait, I'm sorry, Chris, was that actually the serious? Was that? No, it was not. You guys are <laughs> answering my joke question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, if I'm going to answer your joke question, the joke question answer is it, w- it would be a nice Chianti because I like movie references. <laughs> <laughs> no, my real question is a little less gruesome. Since Thelma and Louise and Silence of the Lambs both won screenplay Oscars, I want to know what was the film or TV show that made you first take notice of the writing? In other words, like what was the first thing that made you realize entertainment was written? Uh, let's start with our guest. Arrested Development. 
Mm. Like that, just it's so dense. And like upon rewatches, you realize that they were creating a maze and like every line was said, you know, multiple times. Yeah, just and you can't have that kind of density while like riffing, you know, like, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I went to high school with Steve Holt. Just just it's such a smart you can do more than just like dumb fart jokes for a comedy show and and have like it be even smarter than your audience and like people will love it. But yeah, it, it that rest development is my answer. It's very good. Dude, this is a real tough one because because I was writing screenplays when I was 13 and I can't and uh, I don't I have like that. the answer to that question. Like I can't think of the first mm. movie. This is tough. Or a TV show. Or a TV show. I can't. Mm. I can't recall what that was. It it might have just been a bunch at once. Um, that I I don't. I can't. I don't know. I have no idea. I remember one of the first screenplays I ever read was I think American Beauty. <clears throat> as far as like reading a screenplay, that was you know that won uh, the best os- uh, best screenplay Oscar and was you know noted to be a very good screenplay. I can't. Yeah, this one's tough. Well, what about, you said you were writing screenplays at 13. So like, how did you know what to write? Like, had you, did you know the format or were no, you just kind of I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know the format. So <laughs> I, um, I had a creative writing teacher. We took creative writing in seventh, eighth grade and in eighth grade, this might've even been seventh grade. Wow. We could kind of write whatever we wanted. And I was really into movies and I really liked the book, Go Ask Alice. <laughs> <laughs> and written by committee by a, a team of FBI informants. No, it's from Alice. a it's from a girl in the seventies mm, whose name was yeah. Alice, and it's her diary, and they found it. And, and I was really into this book, and I wanted. I just whenever I was reading it, it's like a diary. Um, I I would see pictures in my brain, and so I I wanted to write a screenplay, and I didn't know how to write one, so I would just open. I think it was called Microsoft Works at the time, not Word. Mm-hmm. There, there were two separate programs. Yeah, it was yeah. works, and um, I literally still have it. Like, I have it on my computer. Um, <laughs> like, why would I throw that out? Um, and I, and I wrote it. <laughs> You're gonna. I need wrote it, it like I think I knew interior and exterior for some reason. I don't. Maybe from plays. Maybe that's how I knew that. But then I did not know the format. No, but I wrote either twelve scenes or twelve pages. I forgot which one. But I handed it in, and he said <laughs> it was like great. Like clearly more advanced than a thirteen-year-old, but not. Super good. Although I remember the first scene had her snorting cocaine, which is <laughs> on brand. On brand. <laughs> the only movies you saw when you were a child had snorting cocaine, so of course you thought that that was necessary for every yeah, single like movie. Yeah, like she's waking up in a bed with somebody and she snorts a line of cocaine that's like on the dresser. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's because of his encouragement. Like I don't think I knew standard screenplay format until I went to Northwestern for a summer for film camp when I was 17. And that's when I learned the right format. But I was writing scripts that whole time and it was just like in Microsoft Works with like name of person, colon, you know, what they say. Interesting. I love that. What about you, Seth? So like Becky, I have a hard time answering this. As we all know, it was a movie buff from a very young age, but also my older cousin, Dax Phelan, is a screenwriter and director out here in L.A., and he was a far more advanced movie buff than I was when I, when we were growing up. And he was always obsessed with scripts and obsessed with lines and quotes from his favorite movies. And you know me, I have many of my favorite movies and favorite moments and lines, but I have never had the kind of like recall for 
specific lines or like the screenwriting structure of movies the way that my cousin did. So growing up, I feel like I was really lucky watching a lot of movies with him because I learned really early on, you know, that movies were stories that were written down like any other story. And especially that, you know, like it was a writer and it was the the intelligence and creativity of an imagination of a writer was required to create all of these worlds that I loved watching. Even when it was movies like, you know, Never Ending Story that I loved so much growing up. But also, like, it for whatever reason, it made me think of, like, the Pee Wee movies <laughs> or, like, the Muppet movies. <laughs> because I got so much fucking joy out of them. And they were obviously, like, very collaborative efforts, especially, like, the Muppet movies. But also, like, I always recognized and appreciated that... All of that genius, like, had someone writing this script and making this script that could animate a movie into that kind of living and breathing thing. It's hard for me to have any one answer, you know, because I got to watch so many great movies that weren't necessarily kids' movies growing up. But also, I was just kind of lucky enough to have people in my life who appreciated that aspect of filmmaking. So I got a kind of early insight into it. That's interesting. I was expecting you guys to have a more specific answer because I did, but it's interesting in your answers that you both were watching good things that were well-written, it sounds like, <laughs> relatively early on. Because I feel like I didn't know, I didn't really have any idea about like screenplays or anything like that early on, probably because I'm not sure that the movies I watched as a kid were written <laughs> <laughs> in the traditional sense. I, you know, it was it's those um, like family comedies, you know, that's the kind of stuff I was watching. I was like Home Alone and stuff that you don't really notice the writing in so much uh, in, in that kind of stuff. When I was a kid, though, also like you guys, I would write stories and I would imagine them as movies. I just never quite understood, you know, exactly what it took to write a movie. Like for me, I think up to a certain point, I thought movies were visual and books were written, and I, I didn't really think about the crossover. So the movie that really made me take notice was Scream, and I think I've probably told this story on the Scream episode of this podcast, but I'm going to tell it again because <laughs> I like it and I want to talk about Scream. We're going to compare it to the original telling and make sure that you line up exactly. Well, consider the Scream 2 then. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a teenager, I had a friend who was Mormon and couldn't see rated R movies. So as a joke, I just started writing a scene about her where Ghostface called her and asked, what's your favorite scary movie? And she hadn't seen any of the horror movies that he was trying to bait her with. And so she just kept talking about the sound of music. And the killer was very frustrated because he couldn't kill her if <laughs> she didn't like know any of the horror movie trivia. And I just like started spontaneously writing it and then like eventually kind of realized like, oh, this is a script because it had dialogue and a little bit of action in there. And that just set me off on writing these movie parodies. Like I turned that into a full like parody of Scream starring like my friends and did that with a bunch of other movies like Titanic and Austin Powers, I think, which is already a parody, <laughs> hard to parody a parody. Yeah, that's pretty meta. Um, but anyway, like that was the early stuff that made me realize um, Scream and Buffy basically because both of them had really snappy dialogue and meta humor. And, and so it was something that was kind of that pronounced of writing that made me take notice. Cool. That's cool. The Silence of the Lambs is based on the 1988 novel by Thomas Harris, the second book featuring the character Hannibal Lecter. The first was 1981's Red Dragon, made into the film Manhunter in 1986, which was directed by Michael Mann, starring William Peterson, 
Joan Allen, Dennis Farina, and Brian Cox playing Hannibal Lecter. Was it Manhunter, M-A-N-N? It was not, because he was, well, I guess if he was the hunter, he could be man, comma, hunter. (laughs) It was a real auteur piece. (laughs) Not enough commas in titles. (laughs) That's Becky's big note on cinema. (laughs) More commas, please. More commas, and you'll be good. That's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago. Yeah, I keep getting it for Christmas. Did you get my card? I got it, thank you. And how is Officer Stewart? The one who was first to see my basement. Stewart's fine. Emotional problems out here. Do you have any problems, Will? No. No, of course you don't. Uh, I'm curious if you guys have seen this movie. I'm mostly curious if Mike has seen this movie since he is such a fan of Silence of the Lambs. Manhunter? Yeah. The original with Brian Cox? No, I have not. What? And I like Brian Cox. I feel like I it would probably right? be palatable, but like it's so difficult because Anthony Hopkins, I mean, even in Red Dragon, uh, which was made after Silence of the Lambs, Hopkins' Hannibal Lecter is like so iconic. It would be really difficult for me to accept Brian Cox, whom I like a lot, as quote unquote Hannibal Lecter. Have you seen it, Chris? Yes. What did you think? Yeah, what'd you think? Because I haven't seen it either. I'm surprised no one has seen it. It's kind of, it's like a, you know, yeah. small classic. I mean, it's definitely not Silence of the Lambs. It's not like Brian Cox is good. He's kind of in a way more believable as a killer because he seems kind of scuzzy and like he seems like truly evil. You know, Hannibal Lecter is this kind of like really larger than life villain who, you know, doesn't actually seem like a, a real person exactly. But this is much more like if he was like a killer that you like recognize and like, you know, other serial killers who have been caught and stuff. The movie's very Michael Mann. It's very like dreamy and lurid. So it's, it's pretty good. It's not as like polished as Silence of the Lambs, but it's kind of an interesting little mood piece. Yeah. It's one of those movies that I've been like meaning to watch for years and just still haven't made it to it, but I really like Michael Mann and I really like Brian Cox too. I'm adding it to my Netflix queue. I get Netflix DVDs guys. Me too. Me too. Thomas Harris based the Buffalo Bill character from Silence of the Lambs on three real-life serial killers. Ted Bundy, who would wear a cast and lure women to help him in order to do terrible things to them. Gary Heidnick, who had a pit in his cellar that he put women in. And Ed Gein, who would peel off women's faces and wear them, and also wear bodysuits, trying to recreate his mother. He was also the basis for another famous uh, movie villain. I'm sure you know who that is. Psycho? Yeah, Norman Bates. I did not know there was an actual pit having serial killer out there that is yeah i didn't know that either that is spooky yuki there's something for everyone you know i I think there's there's a killer for every (laughs) crazy thing that a killer can do there's a place for us all there's not a killer for each one of us (laughs) (laughs) yeah i hope whatever program that is that doesn't go through (laughs) yours is out there you just have to find the right one there probably is a killer for all of us it's just a matter of are they gonna get to you in time before heart disease is yeah. the killer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know. Uh, the book was a success, surprise. Orion Pictures bought the rights, splitting the cost with Gene Hackman, who intended to make this his directorial debut. Ooh. What? Yeah. Glad you missed out on that oppo, Gene. Ted Talley was hired to adapt the book into a film, and uh, as he was writing, Gene Hackman started to realize that the story is kind of violent, and <laughs> he didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> 
So I don't know if he just saw the title, Silence of the Lambs, and was like, that sounds nice. Oh, that sounds cuddly. I'm Gene Hackman. <laughs> but yeah, I have no idea how he ever thought he was going to do this if he didn't want to do a violent movie. But you know what? Sometimes there's uh, cable versions of Tarantino movies. So you can oh, turn Oh, where they anything. say Millen Farmer <laughs> yeah. instead of Motherfucker? <laughs> right. So Jonathan Demme then was approached to direct and signed on before reading the script because he thought the novel was so good. Demme had a leading lady in mind. It was Michelle Pfeiffer, who he had just directed in Married to the Mob. She turned it down also thinking it was too violent. She was uncomfortable with the subject matter. Wow. Wow. Pity. So, yeah, I think it's funny, you know, obviously Jodie Foster got this role and Michelle Pfeiffer was kind of the first choice. And they were both almost Thelma and Louise that they were the first choices for that, too. So Um, what was Michelle Pfeiffer doing this year in 1991? Oh, she was prepping to be Catwoman. She was doing that. She was in a movie called Love Field the next year. I think that was like the official movie that she took. She was also in Frankie and Johnny this year. So she was busy. She she became Catwoman. She's fine. (laughs) Meow. (laughs) Meg Ryan and Laura Dern were approached next. So Laura Dern's still in the mix too. Uh, Bette Midler was not approached. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, like, I don't think so. That would have been a movie. The first choice for Hannibal Lecter was Sean Connery. Hmm. Hmm. I'm sorry. I I can't see it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I found him somewhat charming in his James Bond performances. And he carried The Rock, you know? He is really great in The Rock, but I just don't see him as a deep enough actor. Ouch. The Scottish accent isn't creepy. (laughs) Like a British accent can be creepy. It's pervy creepy, but it's not serial killer creepy. It's charming and sarcastic. Yeah, it's comical. Let's... (laughs) (laughs) You were you were dismissing a whole a whole what was going to say island a whole north half of an island by saying that it's comical. Yes, <laughs> we're we're saying that that entire portion of the EU are comical. Very significant amount of extremely serious and sarcastic people. We are on brand insulting other countries as we <laughs> do way way too often. We're being stridently both American and ourselves. Well, you shan't you shan't insult my favorite country. How about that? I didn't. Becky did. Yeah, I know. I'm looking right at her. I'm admonishing my wife. <laughs> Perhaps because of our reactions right now, uh, Sean Connery did not end up in this movie. Uh, he turned it down. Other actors considered were Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Daniel D. Lewis, and Al Pacino. The big ones. I can kind of see like a Daniel Day-Lewis, even a Robert De Niro. I could see an interesting take from like Daniel Day-Lewis. He can do anything. I mean, he would have done something. He really can. Robert like, De Niro's really a little too New York-y. Like he can't get, <laughs> he can't uh, shed himself of the New york Yeah, he's, <laughs> hey, I'm killing over here. Yeah. <laughs> I took his face off. I took his face. <laughs> Wearing his face. Oh, he fell in a pit. He's not Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> but the problem is, all of De Niro's tics are visual, and we can't, it's harder to do an audio like, hey, you, you, Clarice. You're gonna find, yeah, you're gonna find, you're gonna, yeah, it's, it's harder to do it. You can't do it by audio. It's right visual. Okay, next, next Pacino. <laughs> oh, she's got a great ass, and she's in my pit. And I gotta eat that ass. Oh. Give me a fork and a knife. Oh. Anybody got a Dustin Hoffman while we're at it? 
Um, you got Dustin Hoffman uh, in you, honey? Uh, oh, God. Um, uh, 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 I, uh, I, I, I put it on my pit, and then, and, and, uh, and that, I'm sorry, <laughs> it like veered uh, off. Hey, I'm chomping here. <laughs> Chris never do impressions. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> that was worse than the Pacino? <laughs> the De Niro? Uh, we were putting on a master class over here. I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do impressions. Can this just be the whole episode? <laughs> what would it be like if Gwen Stefani was Hannibal Lecter? I'm just a serial griller. <laughs> I'm just a girl in a pit. <laughs> We've devolved into madness. <laughs> Fortunately, Anthony Hopkins loved the script, even though he initially thought he was being offered a part in a children's story due to the title. Uh, okay. Sounds like he's being cheeky. He based his performance on a combination of Truman Capote, Catherine Hepburn, and Hal 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Huh, interesting. I love that. I can kind of understand each of those. You can definitely hear the Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. <laughs> and the weird <laughs> accent he has. And yeah, that, that sort of methodical, like, Hal 9000 voice, I think you can definitely hear too. Absolutely. You see a lot, Doctor? Or are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. The plot of Silence of the Lambs follows FBI trainee Clarice Starling as she is tasked with interviewing Hannibal the Cannibal, trying to get his help solving the case of another serial killer named Buffalo Bill, who is collecting women's skins to make into a suit, as you do. The movie was released February 14th, 1991. Valentine's Day? Mm-hmm. That's some good counter-programming. That's cheeky. (laughs) That's actually kind of genius. The movie cost $19 million to make, and it made $130.1 million. So clearly a big hit. Not a surprise there. It opened at number one at the box office the same day as Sleeping with the Enemy, King Ralph, L.A. Story, and NeverEnding Story 2. I can tell you what I was doing back in 1991. I was seeing King Ralph in theaters. <laughs> I absolutely, I saw King Ralph in theaters, and I remember seeing NeverEnding Story 2 at the shitty dollar cinema by my house. Pretty sure I was playing with a yo-yo ball at that point, because I don't remember anything else from 91. <laughs> the film earned mostly positive reviews, but there were definitely some mixed reviews as well. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune said, this is a case of much ado about nothing. Dr. Lecter is no Boy Scout. He likes to eat the body parts of his victims. And right now, you're probably thinking, maybe I'll go see Home Alone again. Smart move. I mean, I guess if that's not your thing, but, like, you're a movie critic. Yeah. Like, like critique the movie for what it is. If you want to go see, like, a thriller, is it a good thriller? Ooh. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I will say this. I loved Siskel and Ebert Ebert the show, but I didn't always necessarily love one or the other or both reviews of movies. Yeah. um, Because like any critic, they had particular tastes. And I distinctly remember both Siskel and Ebert um, being pretty 
turned off by anything that was gory or anything that was like very overtly sexual. They famously had a very like controversial negative review of Blue Velvet. Hmm. Yeah, he gave it two stars, so it was a bit of a dig. However, there is someone who reviewed it more positively. <laughs> Can I take a guess? Yes. Who do you think it might be? Oh, and Gleberman. It's Rita Kempley. <laughs> it is Rita Kempley from the Washington yes. Post. Yes. Mike, we, returned we to have to explain to Mike and anybody tuning into the uh, podcast now please. is that we just really like this reviewer and she pops up all the time. <laughs> she was very prolific in the 90s and uh, there, she, she, she gives a good soundbite. She gives a good soundbite. Honestly, and, and, and you'll hear it, Mike, but, but her, work, her work just speaks through time to each of us here at the When We Were Young podcast. <laughs> and we, we don't know what she's doing now uh, or if she was ever really real, but the, the <laughs> legacy she's left behind is really a, an ongoing gift to us. Rita Kempley said, The Silence of the Lambs is delicious with foreboding, a masterly suspense thriller that toys with our anticipation like a well-fed cat. Adroitly directed by Jonathan Demme, it lurks about the exquisite edge of horror before finally leaping into an unholy maw of bloody bones and self-awareness. She got dark on that one. Really did. It was, it really, it took you on a ride. There was that cat. (laughs) (laughs) There was a maw. And a maw. Like Thelma and Louise that we talked about in our last episode, uh, Silence of the Lambs caused a big controversy when it was released. The Academy Awards were protested rather aggressively by the group Queer Nation, who objected to this film, as well as JFK and Basic Instincts for what they saw as negative stereotypes conflating homosexuality and transsexuality with homicidal psychopaths. Um, so maybe we can talk about you know how we what we think about that in the movie when we're actually discussing the film, but it was a big deal at the time that, you know, slightly negatively colored this film. And that will bring us to the 64th Academy Awards, which were hosted for the third and certainly not final time by Billy Crystal. Good Lord. (laughs) They took place on March 30th, 1992, more than 13 months after the release of Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah, this movie had been around long enough at this point that Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins had presented Best Original Screenplay to Ghost at the Oscars the year before. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Here are two actors who are reading raves over their co-starring film, The Silence of the Lambs. Ooh. It's a great movie. Thank you. In which which she plays an FBI agent and he plays a serial killer known as Hannibal the Cannibal. I know. She won an Oscar as Best Actress for The Accused, and he's backstage having a snack. (laughs) And we've just lost John Goodman. They did, like, a whole Silence of the Lambs bit, like, going into that Oscars, because the movie had already been released the year, the Oscars of the year before. Wait, what? What? Because it came out in February, and the Oscars were in March at that point, so. What a weird... I guess this was before, like, Oscar season. So strange. Well, I mean, it's definitely more of a thing now, but it was even then. I think they just didn't expect it to be that kind of movie because it was... Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it. At the beginning of this ceremony, Billy Crystal was wheeled out on a hand truck with a Lecter hockey mask on. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I remember that. I totally remember that. I feel like he probably did that skit as his opening bit for, like, six Oscar ceremonies. (laughs) (laughs) That just feels like the official opening to the Oscars is him being wheeled out. Yeah, it goes 
to show that the movie was a huge cultural phenomenon. Like he made a ton of lecture jokes throughout his opening monologue. It was a thing. For Best Picture, uh, Silence of the Lambs was up against JFK, Prince of Tides, Bugsy, and Beauty and the Beast. It was Bugsy that had the most nominations for the year. It had 10. JFK was next with eight. And then next was Silence of the Lambs, tied with Prince of Tides for seven nominations. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast, that was the first animated movie to be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. I find that interesting because we were talking about how Thelma and Louise did not get a Best Picture nomination. And I bet people were expecting that to get a Beauty and the Beast spot. Probably. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a big surprise at the time. That was a big milestone for this year at the Oscars, as well as uh, John Singleton's nomination. He was the first Black nominee for Best Director, as well as the youngest nominee for Best Director. So a few historic little things there. Uh, We'll wrap up this episode with a little more Oscar talk at the end, but I'll spoil it now. Silence of the Lambs totally swept the Oscars, winning the Big Five Awards for Best Director, Actor, Actress, Screenplay, and Picture, a feat that had only been accomplished twice before in 1934 for It Happened One Night and in 1975 for One Flew Up for the Cuckoo's Nest. So really big deal. Yeah. And that has not happened again since. Someone has to beat Silence at some point. So now I want to hear a story from your childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, did you see Silence of the Lambs back in the 90s? And if so, why were you allowed to? (laughs) I did not say this as a child. I saw it, I want to say, late college era when I was, you know, branching out, you know, discovering myself and my interests and whatnot. Um, So 2006-ish and yeah. It's not that long ago, guys. I find it funny that this is your favorite movie or now in your top five um, because you don't really like horror movies. (laughs) No, and that's, I mean, one of my favorite video games is Resident Evil and it's a horror video game, but I hate horror. Like um, Becky and I watched over several disparate viewings because it's so traumatizing, The Babadook. (laughs) And like, I just can't, I can't, ever watch that movie again it's horrifying it's it's upsetting it's like just horror just freaks me out so so much but there's something different about silence of the lambs in that it's very atmospheric and it's the the most interesting moments in it are just extreme close-ups of people's faces as they're processing pasts or drinking others emotions you know like we talk about like the the horror of Sounds of Lambs or whatever, but like when I think of this film, like I think of the extreme close up on Hannibal Lecter's face, and, and isn't it lovely? It is. It's and it's lovely. Guys, <laughs> it's lovely. It's it's great filmmaking. It makes That's, me feel. It's it makes so me feel fascinating. Seen. It's fascinating to me, Mike. Like again, one of the things I've known about you for the longest is your dislike of horror generally more broadly passionate dislike or any movie that like disturbs you like you don't like content you don't yeah anything's upsetting and i mean like this film for all intents and purposes has a happy ending whereas (laughs) the baba duke does not it's got a happy-ish ending i don't know I don't know. That's a a podcast for another. You leave Silence of the Lambs feeling like, you know what? I feel safe because he's not coming after me. He's coming after this bad The resolution of it. Yeah. Like the fact that it's got resolution. 
Okay. The video game okay. Resident Evil, you get to go around, you kill the thing that's attacking you. Like the thing is scary, right. yes, but you have a shotgun, you can kill it. And like there's that catharsis. With this one, it's yeah. like he's going after Alex Chilton because that, well, I'm spoiler alert, he goes after the guy that was torturing him. And it's going to be okay for the rest of us. You know, like, mm-hmm. like also as a not size 14 woman, I never really truly felt fear in this film. Um, Speak for yourself. (laughs) Mentioned quite a few times that when I was 13, that's when I got into film and I just wanted to see everything. I made like a huge list of movies that I needed to see that were like big in pop culture or like had won all the Oscars, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, like all the Scorsese. And one of them was Silence of the Lambs. And because the title was very creepy, because it didn't really reveal what it was about, like it wasn't like the title was Hannibal, you know? <laughs> that would be a dumb title for a movie. You're on right. the menu. <laughs> I was just very intrigued by it. And I knew it was like a thriller, but like, I really didn't care. Like I wanted, and when I was 13, like I wanted to see really good movies, whether they were like R-rated or creepy. And of course, as we know, my mom would let me see anything. So I remember watching it in my mom's room. I watched it alone. I remember really liking it. And then at the end, when Buffalo Bill has the green goggles on, Or like the night vision goggles Mm -hmm. and the whole screen is green and she can't see anything. I literally was like screaming. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been that scared at any movie that I literally was like, (laughs) because the movie so far, like anything could happen. You know, maybe she'll be thrown in the pit. Like, I don't know. I think that was the most scared I've ever been in a movie, like ever. That's my memory of Silence of the Lambs. And I loved it immediately. Like it became just like part of like who I am. Like I had it on tape on dvd i would watch it all the time like not necessarily like halloween but like just it was just part of my movie watching canon i would write hannibal into like all my essays for school like along with like tarantino characters and yeah i'm in 1492 hannibal lecter discovered the americas So I've been a very, very big fan since I was 13. I read the book, loved the book. I liked Red Dragon okay, but didn't like Hannibal, the sequel. Yeah, I've just been a huge, huge fan for a very long time. Seth? I do not remember what age I was when I first saw Silence of the Lambs. I know that I saw the jokes referencing Silence of the Lambs in a million different places all across pop culture before I saw the movie. Oh, like in Dumb and Dumber? Not even in Dumb and Dumber, Becky. I'm talking like it was all over like Animaniacs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that it was even in like Tiny Toons. <laughs> like it, it, almost every like cartoon. out there i bet there was a muppet babies (laughs) they wheeled gonzo out in the stretcher with the hockey mask oh his nose would be so squished (laughs) it would be so squished (laughs) that was the saddest part of it (laughs) it wasn't one of those movies that i saw too young (laughs) although you know who knows what would have been less traumatizing but becky like you i'm pretty sure i saw it by the time i was 12 or 13 like right around like teenager dumb and i instantly loved it from the very first time i saw it i know that it was definitely a movie that showed the strength of its writing and that i like recognized that as like a a very well written movie the suspense of it and just the rising tension absolutely worked so well for me it was also one of those movies where i noticed the quality and caliber of the actors performances as being a thing that like really 
really drew me into it. And Becky, like you, you know, I'd seen a whole bunch of gory, scary horror movies before this, but that night vision sequence at the very culmination near the end of, the, of Silence of the Lambs was just one of the most terrifying things I had seen. And it was a thing that terrified me that I couldn't have imagined, that I had no imaginative context for seeing or experiencing or relating to. And to see that character put in such a completely helpless, hopeless position just by virtue of the fact that the killer turned the lights out really did something to me and I think it made the rest of the horrifying things in that movie like really land and and all rush home in that moment and so I always came from the first time I saw it came um just felt it was very moved by the way that it worked by the way that it raised its stakes and especially by the ending Like a lot of movies, I heard about this movie from my mom. (laughs) My mom was a spoiler queen, (laughs) Uh, whether or not she she knew it. um, I was not allowed to see movies like this. Nothing rated R at this time. But anything that was too scary for me to see, she would end up like telling me the plot of. And I don't remember if I asked for this or if she just felt like torturing (laughs) me with gory details. I'm sorry, how old were you? Well, when this came out, she saw it, I think, in theaters, so... Your mom would tell you the plot to Silence of the Lambs and wouldn't let you go see Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm sure she's listening right now. So shame on you. We're going to talk about the inconsistency of this code here. Hi, Mrs. Chris's mom. Ten-year-old me is gleefully joyous because he is now having his revenge. We are all shaming my mom for that choice. Yeah, we're standing up for a little Chris. <laughs> Uh, But I do, I remember hearing about Hannibal's face-wearing escape (laughs) and realizing at that moment that it would be a long time before I would actually watch this movie or even be ready to watch this movie. Um, I think this probably would have done me in at the age of eight, I guess. So I probably saw it at some point in high school. I know it was after 1997 because there's a joke in I Know What You Did Last Summer about Silence of the Lambs that I remember hearing it and not knowing what it was. So I had not seen the movie yet. Delivered by Sarah Michelle Gellar. Here's my episode shout out to Sarah Michelle Gellar. It's just one of those classic movies. So it kind of instantly became like a movie that I would own and watch. So I've probably seen it like five times around this point. But um, even though I saw other serial killer movies first, like Seven and Kiss the Girls, this one still stood out as being, you know, more than just your average killer thriller. So we all watched this movie again. Um, We all hated it this time, right? No, it's so good. (laughs) Mike likes it so much that he can't even be sarcastic. <laughs> no. <laughs> you want to go first, Mike? Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just start to finish lovely. I mean, lovely, guys. It's lovely. <laughs> lovely. Lovely. Like when they open up the guy yep. and they're like, oh, he's all, he, uh, he's not having a good day. We watched the movie together and that's how he described it as being lovely. <laughs> uh-huh. It's, it's... <laughs> that sounds like the way Hannibal Lecter would describe a movie of his own exploits. <laughs> you know, it's quite lovely. It's quite lovely. You ever watch Sounds of the Lambs in the Moonlight? It looks quite <laughs> Watching it in what year is it? Twenty twenty one. Yeah, it's, uh. it's it's all it's all a, a big childy pandemicy blur. But I mean, like, yeah, I, I it had been a, a year or two since I'd sat down and watched Sounds of the Lambs, and it just it holds up so strongly in terms of filmmaking, in terms of the performance, the direction, 
the audit, like just everything, like, you know, you, you the, the, all the metaphors in there, like the male gaze. Oh, look out for those men and their gaze. <laughs> going to gaze right at you. Mike, there are two male gaze in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I wish that I had any sort of distance from this movie because I know it so well <laughs> that <laughs> it almost just can't hit the same it's amazing. I love this movie. It's perfect. I, I think it's just incredible. Holds up so entirely well. I just wish that I didn't know it so well. Yeah. <laughs> because we were watching it, and it even though it had been a few years, like it's still like I, I've been seeing this since I was 13 years old. Like I know every minute of this movie. That said, I find it so, so good. I remember when I went to USC and we watched it in my, um, I think it was like race, class, and gender class. And we all watched it on the big screen. Todd Boyd. Right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's it. And I'd always thought of it as a serial killer movie or like a thriller or, you know, a detective movie. I never really thought about it as like Clarice's story specifically. And it's all about her. And then in this class, we watched the movie and then we discussed it. And that's when I saw that this movie is really about how women are looked at by men. Mm-hmm. And that's not just Buffalo Bill's victims, but Clarice herself and Clarice's friend. I forgot her friend in the FBI, like even her, just like how people are looking always at women at the very end when she can't see anything. He's looking straight at her. Anytime that Clarice has a sort of an encounter with an FBI or an alien, <laughs> an FBI agent, <laughs> they're looking at her, you know, and that's kind of where the whole directorial choice of the person looking directly at you, the audience, because you're from Clarice's point of view. And it, I felt like that's when the movie opened up to me and I've always loved it. But that like brought it into a whole new level of I was like, oh, my God, this whole movie is is just how like I mean, Mike was making fun of it, but it's about the male gaze yeah. and how women are looked at and how that affects us as women. I think it's amazing. It just like it brought a movie that I already loved and it made it clear how deep it really was and and just how much more was going on than I even had um, an inkling about growing up. And so every time I watch that movie, I think about that and just find it to be so fascinating. I should also say that about four minutes into the movie, Becky was like, hey, every time th- they in the movie, they say a line that you say. He quotes it all the time. <laughs> they quote it all the time. Take a drink. He was like, wasted. Guys, like there are, there, are, there are moments where I just like, okay, I need to finish this whole shot because I say, get this thing back to Baltimore so much. When we went to Baltimore, you would not stop saying. Just looking around oh, like, no. hey guys, guys, guess what? We got this thing back to Baltimore. That was our experience. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just me drinking and loving it. So that's a kind of torture too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's the sweetest torture of all because it's a torture called family. Seth, do you concur with uh, (laughs) Becky and Mike uh, loving this film? I absolutely must concur. You guys, this is two episodes straight where we have not disagreed with each other on the general tenor of our love for the film. And, and Well, we don't know what Chris thinks. You know, I, I just must unanimously uphold this. I just wrote down, like, it is a perfect movie. The end. <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks for coming. It was a good episode, guys. Good episode. I've got some critiques of it now. Now that it's a movie that I've lived with for, like, 30-something years and have seen it so many times. 
but it is still one of my favorite movies of all time. And especially just in terms of, again, the writing, the casting and performances, and also the direction. I, and I really grew to appreciate Jonathan Demme's movies after this. But yeah, I still think, even though it's very much a 90s movie in a lot of ways, I do think it kind of set off a good, like, course artistically for 90s thrillers and i kind of regret that thrillers are not as complex and thoughtful and actually tense as this movie was i feel like the way that this movie influenced culture lended itself more toward shitty procedural tv shows with acronyms for names um (laughs) But this movie in particular and the characters in this and the writing, I I think are just tremendous drama and a tremendous thriller that absolutely just still completely works so well. I like it. That's, that's my <laughs> consensus. Yeah, like like you guys, I can't I can't dissent. I think this is one of the best directed movies ever. Totally agree. Because it, on one level, it feels so effortless. Like it's not ever really showy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are so many like really stylized kinds of movies, and this is the, a kind of genre that can be very stylized and. You could easily imagine that being the choice, but it's not like that. It's actually just really, his direction is so character-based, you know, which I have plenty to say about as we go on. The cinematography, the camera movement, the choice of shots, like all of it just feels so right on the money without ever trying too hard. And this is my favorite kind of movie, is one that works on two levels. You can turn your brain off and you can enjoy it. And many people watch it on this level, I think, and just like have a fun time watching a thriller. And you can also write a thesis paper about any scene in this movie Mm -hmm. there's this deeper level to absolutely i feel like every choice every shot i think you could probably pick apart and you know talk about how it speaks to the themes that are in this movie about gender and the male gaze and all that and that's for me i love enjoying a movie which is probably how i responded to it the first time is just like enjoying it as a film being thrilled and then like gradually kind of being sucked into like how brilliantly like made it is and how much it has to say even though it never like none of the dialogue maybe like one or two lines you know are kind of speak to a feminist theme but like there's no like big speeches about like feminism it's just it's there in the actual filmmaking so it's like invisible but like also like once you see it you can't unsee it well it's it is in dialogue but not overtly it's just in the way like people are hitting on Clarice Mm -hmm. and the way she has to respond to them to like keep going with her goals of finding out who the killer is or interviewing Hannibal Lecter you just see it in reactions like you see even when like in a small small scene like just Clarice is running with her FBI friend and then a bunch of men who are running in the other direction look behind them and look at them it's like little Mm -hmm. things like that or or when Clarice has to get all the men Uh, like all all the policemen or sheriffs and stuff out of the room so they can do the autopsy. Just the silence after she says, all right, now get on out of here. Or there's also like when she's going into the Memphis courthouse and then there's the Memphis sergeant with this silly mustache going like, oh, we don't don't allow visitors. And then she sort of, he sort of looks to the cop sitting next to him and it's a female cop. And she looks at that, at that sergeant like, Come on. She doesn't have to say she has no lines. She looks at this at this at this sergeant and he's saying, All right, you can go. It's like, all right, all right. Again, the, the feminist without being loud about it. I wanted to point out, Becky, that scene you mentioned where Clarice has to clear that room so she can do the autopsy. 
Mm-hmm. Because in in the midst of that moment, Crawford, who's her FBI boss, subverts Clarice by saying that they should like talk in the other room because there's a woman present, and that's initially how Crawford tries to like clear the room or whatever. But Clarice like immediately turns the tables on her boss, like in front of her boss, and clears the room. Mm-hmm. And then after that scene, she calls him out on the bullshit that he did in the car ride when they're like together afterward. Mm-hmm. And he cops to it. He says, point taken, Clarice. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I thought that scene really stood out to me. I think it is obviously very much a movie that's like about the male gaze and about the experience of, of living as a woman. But I loved the way in which Clarice Starling did make it vocal like and when she chose to you know and like how she chose to mike i I like that example you brought up because she like did it wordlessly but i also like the moments in the story where she just does it by her actions and her words too because again it's a movie that i feel like could have aged so much worse (laughs) in the time in the many many years now since its release but to me, really doesn't. We'll talk about trans issues later, but especially in terms of Clarice, I think this movie is even better than it gets credit for in terms of the agency that it gives her in terms of the ways that she is always driving the story. She is always really driving the action. And especially when literally all the men surrounding her think that they're in charge. (laughs) Mm. And for that, like, this movie only kind of gets stronger with age for me. I like that Hannibal Lecter, like, believes in her <laughs> to, like, solve it. Yeah. Like, he's, he's interested. He doesn't just be like, all right, well, this guy did it. You know, go I here. I want you to figure out the solution yes, yourself. Honey. Yes, honey. We know that you <laughs> do impressions. <laughs> I like that he's like a mentor, I guess, but he like, like he believes Absolutely. that she's smart enough to do it. You know, it's such an interesting relationship. Those two. It's a really fascinating relationship. That, that's another aspect of both their performances. And again, uh, the writing that came through to me this time. It's so weird. And like, if you think back, like he had dismissed her and then Miggs befouls this poor woman. And then he, he strained the, come on back. I'm, I'm going to help you now that you've been befouled. I'm now so sorry. Thrown, what had come thrown in your face. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to say that, babe. I'm glad you did. This is a family show. <laughs> that is the politest word I've ever heard for that action. Befouled. Befouled. Very much so. But yeah, no, he had, in their first meeting, written her off. You look like a rube. Your good bag and your cheap shoes. Hmm. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling robe with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamp? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. 
he had written high. He was rude. And then someone else was way ruder. He's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to help this girl. And then it ends up being like, you know, he's, he's actually interested in this person. And, you know, it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like that this movie has, I mean, it's really kind of about dual mentors because Crawford is a mentor Mm -hmm. to her as well as Lecter is too. And it's kind of like these dark and light father figures, like the angel on one side of the shoulder and the (laughs) devil on the other. Good daddy, bad daddy. (laughs) Yeah, this is such an interesting movie because it's just like driven by their intellect and they're both the smart, like they're both probably people who consider themselves the smartest person in most rooms. It's this meeting of the minds and that's what's really fascinating about this movie is it's all about psychology. Even the title of the movie is about like a woman's psychology. It's not like, I mean, it sounds like a scary thing, but what it actually is, is like just like explaining her trauma. And that's just such a rare thing. Like instead of, you know, calling this movie like skin killer, like whatever, like. (laughs) Or Hannibal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll have what he's having. (laughs) I have an alternate title pitch. Ugh, men. (laughs) That was Thelma and Louise. We we can't have the same title in the same year. Okay, here's another one. Yum, women. (laughs) You know, no woman gets eaten in this film. That's true. That's true. Hannibal doesn't. I think he only talks about eating men. That's true. Mm -hmm. He has to be likable. (laughs) I want to point out one of the greatest shots of anything is when we are in Clarice's point of view and she's walking toward Hannibal Lecter's cell and like we just the reveal of him already standing there mm-hmm. like at oh, attention yeah. very polite it's so great it's such a great character reveal and it is so creepy it's so great. because it's not like he's even sitting he's like he's like at attention in the middle of this cell and then we are slow like we slowly get to see all of him it's just so well directed to make you feel in her shoes, like how creepy and how nervous you would feel. You don't know what you're about to see. Yeah. Everybody else in that row is like in their own way, horrific or like, ugh, like creepy. And in Mick's case, very gross and, and very rude. And then there's just this very polite man just in the center, just ready, ready for you. And, and we've heard a lot about him already. They talk about him as though he's a supervillain, like he's done this and he's done this and we have to lock him down in the basement and he's in the last cell. And it, there's all this buildup. So the fact that we just see a man standing there, we already are bringing so much with us to when he gets revealed that he doesn't need to be like jerking off like Migs or drooling or something <laughs> like monstrous that we might think he's just standing there. But we're bringing so much with us um, at the start. Because he's already ahead of her. Like, he is Mm -hmm. waiting for her. And it it establishes Mm -hmm. this fact that he is almost like has the supernatural, like, understanding of what's going on. Even though he's in a cell and can't, you know, easily get information. That scene is so well put together, just like from the beginning of like them walking down. It's like this descent into hell and the (laughs) the camera work is so good, you know, just like tracking them. It builds so much suspense. And Dr. Chilton is, like Becky said, saying all these things that are building him up as this monster. And then you see him and he looks not like a monster, really. I mean, it's creepy, but he's also he has that immediate like kind of like gentlemanly look. Mm -hmm. The, The way that he's standing is very kind of like polite and at attention. His thing is control he is in control over almost every moment that he can get there's a few moments where he he feels put off jack crawford sent me a trainee but like otherwise like he is in control of every conversation that he has like that's what makes him so scary it's like you can't give him anything like not even your personal information because he will find a way to use that to break you like he he organizes his grand escape with a pen 
with a silly little pen. A pen. Mm-hmm. That's all it took. He used his voice to kill Migs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, I mean, it's hard to imagine exactly how that happens. And that's one of those things that makes him feel, again, like supernatural, like he has some kind of special power. Yeah, like to, to me, Hannibal Lecter is almost a force like Jason. Yeah, they share a mask. <laughs> it's like, it's very much like a slasher movie, but from the vantage point of psychology, there's something that's like so inherently fascinating about that, but it still works so well too. And usually that's in a killer like Jason, who is basically faceless and has like a mask on. And so it's really mm-hmm. interesting to see that kind of, like the killer is always ahead of the victim and like ways that wouldn't really make sense in real life. But it's interesting to see it in a character who we're actually just seeing, you know, like his face and hearing him have a conversation kind of like a real person. I also have to point out part of what makes the scene so great is the production design of his cell which is you know not built like what you'd expect a normal jail cell to be like but it's made of glass and that was like a big you know choice in the movie like they tried having bars you know like like a normal cell and they tried all kinds of different like widths of bars that would be it but they always found it like really distracting because you have to shoot the reactions through bars and stuff so it was just like this brilliant choice to have him just like encased in glass like almost like he's like a figurine of some kind and it's just chilling. I always wondered about that yeah that's really interesting I have noticed that um in that scene when he's in Memphis and he's in the cage in is it like an art gallery like where are they <laughs> the courthouse, courthouse? Okay, wait, it's supposed to be, yeah. but it's like an empty room yeah it's weird it's like a ballroom in the middle ballroom. of a court <laughs> like they had nowhere to put him so they like brought a cage to a large yeah. space yeah yeah <laughs> I just, I find it interesting that in in the very beginning, when the relationship is starting, there's no way for them to have any sort of contact. And as good as it is to like film through the glass, you are aware the glass is still there. But by the end, they actually like touch fingers and it's so like chilling, Mm -hmm. but they are able to have that connection. And the way that they film is that through the bars, like there's nothing separating them, like as far as like glass or something, like it's almost like they're getting closer and closer throughout the Mm -hmm. movie. Yeah, Jonathan Demme directed every interaction between them. And there's only four in the movie, even though that is like the most memorable, you know, part of this movie. But he filmed each of them differently. You can just tell that he's like thinking about what he's doing and the way that he's like the shots that he's choosing are reflecting like where these characters are in relation to each other, like emotionally and psychologically. And that's what I mean when I say like this movie is just so like kind of mind blowingly directed is I, I just feel like every choice is so, so well thought through and yet it never calls attention to itself. No, it's so deliberate. Like, there's no shot where I'm like, well, that's just coverage. You know, like, it just feels like he knew exactly where to put the camera so that it made made sense emotionally. There's no, like, two shot with, like, here's the back of Hannibal's shoulder and there's Clarice. And then, all right, now here's back Clarice's shoulder. Look at Hannibal. Hey, let's riff for a little while. And then well, it'll be good stuff for the bonus content for the it's outtakes. It's like Apatow yeah. yeah. Just keep riffing. <laughs> I was going to say, this is the Seth Rogen version of Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> another kind of detail and another image from this movie that's still totally indelible for me are the moths. The, the death's head moth. And the cocoon that Clarice discovers Ugh. inside the throat of one of the victims. That shot where they take it out of her mouth. That shot is, is like, still so crazy. You can um, see hear her lungs filling back up with air when they pull it out. Just like, oh. Yeah, it's, like, oh, it's, it's gnarly. Goodness. I just love the image of that moth 
near the end of the movie, the abandoned house that Buffalo Bill killed the occupant of and has been living in, the way that it's like full of those moths and they're, they're so loud too, like it's just a constant buzzing, humming sound. I love the symbolism of that moth, but also just the image of that. And that's another part of the creepiness of the movie that really stayed with me. Can we talk about how the poster with the moth, how for years I just saw it as uh, she's got a moth on her face. And then you re- then you look in real close <laughs> and you see it's, oh, it's it's not even the death. No, it's a little feenies. It's a booty. Like it's people. making It's, a, it's a Salvador Dali. Yeah, I didn't know that. I know. It took a little bit for me to be like, oh my goodness, look at what it's made up of. I have that actual Salvador Dali on my wall by the way of course you do <laughs> it's very cheerful it's lovely it's Aww. it's like a perfect image because it's the death's head moth but then like then they use like the skull made up of women of women's bodies like headless women's bodies it's like the most perfect like it fits with the movie so well it's, yeah it's kudos to the poster design one of the most <laughs> iconic posters one of the best posters ever oh yeah those little cocoon or Cupi or whatever they are were made out of Tootsie Rolls <laughs> and gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. And did you guys know that that body that they like take the um, moth out of, that was an actress. Like that wasn't a prop. Yeah, I figured it looked like a real body. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, can you imagine like that's, oh, that's, that's your role? Nope. I can't. Best supporting actress. Yeah, Frederica Gimmel. Gimmel. I brought up the death's head moth, not just because of its power as a symbol and like a freaky creature, but there's a line of Hannibal Lecter's in the movie. And I, of course, love Anthony Hopkins' performance and how he enunciates this line. The significance of the moth is change. Caterpillar into chrysalis or pupa, and from thence into beauty. Our belly wants to change too. What do we think about the character of Buffalo Bill? What do you think about the way that he transgresses gender? And how do you think that's held up? I had a couple weeks before come across an article, which I very strongly recommend people look into uh, on AV Club. I really want to like pull up a quote from this article. 30 years in, Science of the Lambs, James Gum still deserves better. This was published <laughs> February 2021 by Harmony Colangelo. You know, I read this in preparation for this podcast. The paragraph that I think sums things up. Hannibal Lecter might be wrong about Billy not being really being trans, but he was correct in saying that people like them are made. Within the film, Jane Buffalo Bill Gum was created by a system that did everything it could to fail them. There is a reflection of this in the filmmakers who seemingly took every measure to make Jane Gum wholly unsympathetic in a film that is supposed to be about criminal profiling and the psychology of a killer. Gum is based on real-life serial killers, and whether the powers that be knew it or would admit it, the circumstances that push the character to that point tracks with the real-life culture that is indifferent towards the suffering of people like Gum. And if the insistence is that the character was not trans or not gay, then there is no reason to include those aspects other than to sensationalize or exploit the perversion of queer people for the shock of cis straight moviegoers. Essentially, this movie is hovering its finger over all the things it is denying while chanted, I'm not touching you, over and over. 
uh, transgender issues are really having a moment right now. And like, look, my favorite punk band against me, uh, their lead singer used to be called Tom. Now she's Laura Jane Grace. And she's every bit as badass as she used to be, but she's now claims the gender that she's wanted. And like transgenderism is, is played for fear in this film. It's hard to rectify like that this film that I love so much and still love does play on the fear, uh, like the trans panic thing. Right now, as we speak, all the Republicans are like, oh, we got to take a stand against any sort of bogus social issue that we can so we can say we're doing things under a Democratic president. So they're picking like keeping trans kids out of sports. So there's a lot of that coming up right now. And it's and it's ugly because it's like, you know what? Wh however you choose to identify, whoever you are, if you share that with the world, that's beautiful. It's tough. I see the critiques. I hear their critiques like... A, a big threat of it is like, well, it's not transphobic because Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter comes out and, and says like, oh, well, Billy's not a real transsexual. Trans oh, yeah. Transsexuals are very passive. It's like, okay, what, what are you basing that on? Like, there's not really a scientific basis to Clarice and, and Hannibal's conversation about what real transsexualism is. Are you, are you just basing that on the public understanding of what transsexualism should be in 1991? So, I mean, the film beyond these very, beyond, beyond its transphobia, the film is perfect. But as, as soon as you bring that element in, it can be problematic because there's, you know, there's trans people who don't have heroes and who have had to grow up under the shadow of all of the, the trans people portrayed in pop culture have been serial killers or like, oh, surprise, there was a man all along, you know, like these really ugly pop culture moments. But I mean, look, as a, as a cis, white, straight, male American uh, you know of moderate weight and height like I still love this movie so much it's so good so I I have many thoughts about this and it's a can of worms that I feel like it's a, totally appropriate to open. Open those worms. Open them. Okay, so one thing is that I cannot possibly and will not possibly ever claim that my opinion on any of this is like either objective or applicable to anyone else but me. And speaking as another person who was cisgendered and born male, you know, I do not claim any kind of expertise on trans issues, but I will say that transgender identity and transsexualism, transvestitism even, these are all kind of very different things. And I don't think anything about this movie makes the argument that James Gunn is transgender, but I also don't think in 1991 that transgender identity was that solidified a thing. It was certainly absolutely not a part of pop culture or mainstream culture at all. But I, I don't think that the movie is doing the things that that opinion writer claims it's doing. Because I don't think the movie invokes the gender performance of Buffalo Bill as the cause of his being a murderous piece of shit. Like when Hannibal Lecter is talking about like how people like this are made, he's talking about how like how serial killer psychopath assholes get made, not how people have gender dysphoria. I can definitely understand finding like the talk, especially like when Clarice talks about like people who are transsexual tend to be passive. I could definitely like understand like asking where that comes from because she doesn't really give any like evidence or <laughs> basis in the movie for that. But it's like something that the movie spends almost 
spends no time on. And ultimately, like, that's not what the movie is about. The movie is about trying to find this person before he can kill more women. But even then, like, I found it interesting when I rewatch stuff in preparation for podcast episodes, like Becky, I absolutely can't get this whole movie out of my mind and start fresh, start from square one or whatever. But I do try to intently watch with a more critical eye than I otherwise might. So especially when sitting down to watch this, I felt a bit more of a sensitivity toward how it would treat Jane Gum and how it would treat like Buffalo Bill. And I think how I ultimately come away with it is I think it only spends as much time trying to explain Buffalo Bill as it takes to put Buffalo Bill in the scene and have that character be taking the actions that that character is taking. You know, so for that reason, I don't find it as problematic and I don't think the movie has aged as badly, nearly as badly, again, as it absolutely could have aged, especially in terms of portraying gender performance by this horrible villain, because I think the movie spends basically all its effort on the real drama of this story that's at hand and of Clarice trying to find Buffalo Bill and Hannibal Lecter and Clarice's relationship. If it had spent more time trying to like fill out the lore of Buffalo Bill, I think it very well would have been much more problematic about it because I think the mainstream understanding of all of these issues was not even just being born and just starting to kind of percolate into pop culture. And Mike, I totally, when you were talking about it, I, it what it made me think of is uh, movies like The Crying Game. That kind of mistaken gender reveal, kind of uh, a, a character who's trans or is definitely not gender conforming, like intentionally withholding, intentionally misleading cisgender straight men about their sexuality and about their gender orientation. I feel like that's a lot more pernicious. So I just feel like there are a lot of movies that did all of this a whole lot worse and a whole lot more on the nose. I personally was surprised at how little this movie kind of offended me in that sensibility, at least. But Becky and Chris, I'm really interested to hear what y'all think. Yeah, I understand, like, in a larger sense, what people were protesting, because there's definitely an overall problem with people who don't follow gender norms being branded as perverts and freaks in pop culture. So that is definitely a thing. And like Seth, I also, like, don't feel it's, like, my place to say, like, that this is is or is not offensive you know if someone you know who is trans you know does find it offensive i don't really feel like it's my place to say actually it's not like here's why but from my perspective i just see it as so specific like buffalo bill is such a specific character mm -hmm. that i feel like his sexuality is buffalo bill there's one person in the world <laughs> who has that sexuality and it's him all these um criticisms they talk about you know the trans aspects of him but there's also a lot of like really much more heterosexual aspects of him too and that's a big part of his sexuality as well and so i just feel like i mean what i know about most trans people he isn't like that and he you know thomas harris wrote him to not be like that. I read the book. Um, there's actually more in the book about them trying to track him down by ruling him out as someone who would have gone for gender reassignment surgery and would have been rejected because he has these violent tendencies that, that actually he's not really a trans person. He keeps kind of trying on different identities and can't quite find out what his identity is. And so that was cut out of the movie. They shot some of those scenes. But even then, you know, you can't put all of that in the movie. 
And I just wanted to touch on that because that, again, like goes back to the image of the death's head moth and like how Lecter describes it. All of Buffalo Bill's efforts aren't really in the service of trying to become a woman. They're like in service of trying to become Buffalo Bill. Lecter's line is like, our Billy wants to change too. But it's like even Lecter makes clear that Billy has no idea what he wants to change into. That is a person or a gaping void in search of a person that is trying to fill it in this horror way. And I think if the same kind of thing were in, you know, like the bone collector or one of the kind of knockoffs of this movie that isn't as thoughtful, um, you know, I can see you could make this argument more. But in this movie that's so thoughtful about gender, I actually find it really scary to have a killer that is really masculine in some ways and really feminine in others. Like he's too slippery to even be defined by any label. Like he's not gay. He's not straight. He's not trans. He's not really a man or a woman. Just that he takes on all these aspects of multiple serial killers. He just like kind of encompasses a little of everything. And I actually, I just think that that's like scary. I think people are like really focused in on the trans aspect, but it's really, it's not that he's trans. I think it's just that he's like encompassing everything he could possibly be. I mean, maybe it's my privilege speaking, but just it didn't bother me. Um, And I never thought of him as actually trans in this movie or as a trans person. Like when Clarice knocks on his door at the end and he answers, he's just wearing a men's shirt. You know, it's not like he, in his private time, dresses as a woman. Um, So I I just, again, I, I agree with Chris. Like, it's not up to me if this is offensive to trans people or not. But while I'm watching it, I just don't, I don't feel like he's trans. I agree with you. I feel like he's just something else, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, but I do agree that this movie did, it, it did, um, sorry, what's the word am I looking for? It did add to the trans panic at the time that through movies like the crying game, um, and, Ace Ventura. Ace Ventura. And Ace Ventura. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it did <laughs> contribute. Even though if even if that wasn't the intention, I think it did contribute. Um, and I think this is a good conversation to have. And I think that it really says something that we're having these conversations about um about people that may or may not be trans. Like they weren't having these conversations in nineteen ninety one, really, like or or people weren't people that were trying to have them, you know, the whole world wasn't really participating. Um, so I, I think it's awesome that we're talking about this um, just for me. And I feel like I'm an ally and that I'm sensitive to these things. But for me, it didn't really bother me as much as Ace Ventura did. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like Ace Ventura like plays on that sort of thing for like, oh, gross, you know, sicko. Like, look how free, what a, what a freak. Like, Science of the Lambs, the whole movie like stops to point and laugh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very Multiple much a times. pointing and laughing type yes. situation. Like Science of the Lambs like takes it and tries to make him like it it's used almost as a moment of like humanizing him. Like hey, he was made one through years of systematic abuse. It's like, okay, well, if this person was abused and that denied them the opportunity for the trans for the sex resummit surgery like sorry you can't get the gender identity you want because of all the bad things that have happened to you like that that's messed up but i mean like 
Yeah, it yeah. was. I didn't know, Chris, that that detail you gave about how in the book it's explained a little more. I think in the movie they briefly mentioned the sex reassignment surgery, um, yeah, but I do. feel like if they had underlined that a bit more, then that would have you know made a bit more sense of that to make clear that they weren't talking about like connecting Buffalo Bill's gender dysphoria to the abuse that they suffered. Yeah, they, I mean, it was basically there's a scene where like uh, Jack Crawford is going to a doctor at one of these um, institutes that does the gender reassignment and the doctor is saying no i won't give up my patients because they don't deserve this that's you know a a violation of them and so it's kind of this conversation about how like this guy actually isn't one of your patients because you rejected him and you rejected him because he's violent and doesn't belong you know with these people so it it does highlight that more but it just yeah it got cut out of the movie and Mm. but i mean i have to say like even though it might have caused all this controversy and be problematic. I just love that scene where Goodbye Horses is playing. Like, it's so creepy. <laughs> oh, come on. It's uh, iconic. Guys, I mean, you know that, but I mean, guys, <laughs> as in the people listening to this, me and Mike played that at our wedding. We did. <laughs> and we did. everybody we, tucked. <laughs> everybody dick tucked. Well, I mean... Everybody dick tucked. <laughs> we we <laughs> had a fun <laughs> dance, <laughs> but the dance was fully clothed. It just is very suggestive of uh, the old, old whoop and hide. I, I don't know. What would he, would he go? I don't want to say dick tucked. That's so, that's so uh, lewd. Mike is so demure on this episode. It, Mike, call it a rich Richard Tuck. That's mm. <laughs> that's classy. <laughs> Richard Tuck. It was a lovely moment at our wedding. I liked that we had the kind of relationship that we can play Goodbye Horses, <laughs> a song that is famous for literally yeah. no other reason. Like, while we're on the subject of Buffalo Bill, I just have to say, like, Ted Levine's performance as him, I think, is really underrated. So good. Because obviously Anthony Hopkins got the Oscar and is the one that like everyone, you know, continues to talk about. Put the fucking lotion on the basket. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. <gasps> Mr. My family will pay cash. Whatever ransom you're asking for, they'll pay it. <gasps> it rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. <gasps> Okay. 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 I love I the lines about the lotion. Like, they're some of my favorite lines in the movie. I don't know why. It's kind of creepy. But, like, he's just so good. I love the moment also when the woman in the pit is screaming and he starts screaming and, like, pulling on his shirt like he has breasts. And, like, mimicking her. Yeah, it's so creepy. So scary. And I think it just speaks to the fact that he's just, like, a freak. You can't really take him seriously as any one thing, because he's just, like, this whole other category of, of thing. Yeah. I like that the movie goes there. I like that, like, when he first kidnaps her in the van, we don't see him hitting her. Like, she's off screen, like, in the van. I, I like that there are certain moments where you don't see the violence because it's not necessary but i felt like it was it was necessary at the end to see this suit that he is making out of skin and it is so creepy and i just felt like it was necessary it's like this is how disturbing this person is that you are trapped in this basement with yeah it's not that like any violence is this movie isn't about violence. This movie is about violations. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's very much like a transgression. And like he very much does violate 
people in so many different ways and you get into the ideas of like the men that watch Clarice Starling jog around like you know they violate her in their own little teeny tiny way but like these are very cumulative things like it's a whole culture of everybody needs to stare at this tiny woman as she tries to take command of a room or even just get by you know well that's why the movie is about how serial killers view women and also how everyday men Right. Because all men are serial killers. Yeah, I get it. It's true. No, like it's a it's a range, and it, it it's so brilliant at putting you in the the point of view of Clarice and I guess women in general, and that this is what they have to go through every day. Mm-hmm. Groups of men looking down at them, you know, not taking them seriously, not respecting them, even even in the smallest way. Like on one end of the spectrum, there's literally a guy that is kidnapping women and throwing them in a pit and taking off their skin. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's the group of men who just like look down at her in the elevator. But it's it's all like a relate. It's all related. Becky, that reminded me of the the scene with the entomologist, where that guy is just like staring through her and just like mindlessly <laughs> flirts with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the book, he's very handsome. In the movie, he is cross-eyed. Yeah, he's he's not exactly a looker in the movie. But the point is exactly what you're saying, Becky, which is that it's very much a picture of the whole spectrum of how men look at women and how, Mike, as you're saying, like how men violate women. Because I think that really the horror of the night vision scenes is violating a woman's sense of space and sense of propriety and just the fear that you see in Chloe Starling's eyes is just knowing that she has absolutely no control. So, of course, that's also itself like a great parallel opposite to Hannibal Lecter, who's the person who's always in control of all things and all variables at all times. But yeah, I I think it's, again, it's a movie that can, in one sense, be very easily reduced to a lot of different pop cultural references and jokes, which it has been, (laughs) but also contains so many layers and gradations and shades in it. Um, And I think that's also why it works so well as a thriller and why it is actually scary. Yeah, I mean, you talk about like the male gaze and the violations and whatnot, but there's also an argument to be made of like the meeting of eyes in one way or another of like really having a a genuine connection because when Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling are talking to one another about the jail cell, about her, the darkest moment in her childhood, they are looking directly at each other. They're seeing each other. They're connecting in this really well, in this very Mm -hmm. real way. And it's not a violation, even though it's like he's very clearly plumbing some very dark depths of her psyche like she's going along with it and there's a real connection there i mean now that i think of it is that in itself a violation that she's willingly offering the darkest moment in her childhood up to this man it's uh, it's such a good, it's such a good movie that like that gaze is used in so many different ways that mm-hmm. all have such distinct characters and in that moment when they're looking at one another and having this conversation it doesn't feel like a violation of Clarice like it feels like a violation of the viewer like we feel like I don't want to learn this horrible thing that she (laughs) went through and like I don't want Hannibal Lecter looking at me with eyes bigger than any human being on a screen just staring through us like he's seeing me the audience as we 
look at these actors on a screen like we are like maybe that's really what makes that moment in in cinema history like so powerful it's like it really does call the audience into account we become aware of ourselves watching this movie and like th this person's trauma is on display and, uh, and it really does feel like we are voyeurs yeah that's what's really striking about the direction of this film is that there are so many different um, close-ups of different characters, um, like mm -hmm. most striking, probably Hannibal and Clarice. But you first notice it, I think, in um, the early scenes with Clarice and um, Jack Crawford. And there's, it's it's just such an interesting choice because you rarely see, you're rarely so aware of characters looking at each other in a movie, and this just makes you so aware of the ways that like char characters are studying each other. Like it's again, it's all about psychology and and what these people's like faces are saying to each other because they are about as close as like you would see someone's face if you were talking directly to them. But it's rare that you actually see a film shot that way. But um, yeah, I just, I find it so striking. It's like Clarice and Jack Crawford, Clarice and Hannibal Lecter and Clarice and her roommate. And Chilton. And Alex Chilton too. Yeah, th that's <laughs> true. We've tried to study him, of course, but he's much too sophisticated for the standard tests. Oh my, does he hate us, thinks I'm his nemesis. Crawford's very clever, isn't he, using you? What do you mean, sir? Pretty young woman to turn him on. I don't believe Lecter's even seen a woman in eight years. And oh, are you ever his taste, so to speak. I graduated from QVA, doctor. It is not a charm school. Good, then you should be able to remember the rules. On the note of Chilton, I think he's also one of the underrated um, performers <laughs> in this. Like he's so scuzzy. Yes. Like he he belongs in Thelma and Louise being like shot at or something. I like how many villains are in this movie, but it just depends whose villain are you. Right. Well, I, I love Chilton, like, because he's so jealous of Hannibal, too, and, like, constantly <laughs> just jealous of Hannibal's infamy, even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, to talk a little bit more about Hannibal Lecter, since he's kind of the breakout star of, of this film, I just think it's so fascinating that there's a, a serial killer character whose approval you want. <laughs> like, we as the audience <laughs> would want oh, yeah. his approval. I get the sense that, like, if Hannibal Lecter didn't like me, I would feel bad about myself. <laughs> like, that there was something wrong with me. Even before he ate you. <laughs> and he's like, he's the only serial killer who would insult your shoes, and that might be even worse than him eating you. Like, <laughs> They're equally bad. It's like, don't insult me. Also, don't eat me. But mostly just don't think poorly of me. <laughs> that shot of the his guts as like an angel is pretty iconic. Guts is an angel. That's a, guts is that's an a angel. pop song, isn't well, it? What, what, what do you call that? I don't know what you call that. Entrails. Hang on display. His entrails. Innards. Innards. His well, befoulement. His befoulement. It's just a go. fucking cool shot. Yeah, it is a <laughs> so cool. super cool shot. I also do remember when I was 13 going, oh, when when he sta uh, sits up in the ambulance and takes the face off. and Face off. off. This is the thing that uh, I remember talking to Becky a while about, like, what's the difference between horror and thriller? Horror is when you're trying to escape the thing that's, that's scary and attacking you. And thriller is when you're going towards the thing that's scary and attacking. And like, this well, is the ultimate example of that. Like, you're she welcome. Goes toward, yeah. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> We've just defined cinema. Thanks. The end. Th thanks, film student. <laughs> 
So I wanted to talk a little bit more about Clarice since she's our protagonist and um, just a great uh, movie character. Um, I love the way she's introduced, like being really active, you know, she's like running and doing the obstacle course at the FBI. Like it, it immediately establishes her as like this hard worker. Like she's doing it. It's not a group shot. She's like doing it alone. So, you know, she's doing it kind of like on her own time. Um, there's another like great moment, like after she first meets Lecter and Miggs uh, befouls her, um, <laughs> where she has the flashback to her father and she's crying. And then it like smash cuts to her shooting a gun. And I just loved the juxtaposition is that she's vulnerable, but also like will always like follow that up with like strength. Yeah, that cutaway really leapt out to me this time. I didn't ever remember seeing that. And it, it just worked so well. And it was such an efficient like bit of backstory, you know? Mm-hmm. I When I saw that, I got the feeling that that's how she deals with her vulnerability. Like, that's maybe why she's an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that that's how she copes. Yeah, I find her, she's such an unusual protagonist, like, in part just because she's a woman in a, like, horror genre, or I guess police procedural kind of movie. But also, I think just because she's vulnerable, like, you don't see a protagonist who's as vulnerable as she is very often. Like, usually it's like the hotshot cop. And even if it's a woman, especially, like, in movies after this, like, there's a lot of women who will like come in and like be like, I got the balls for this. And, you know, like they're like out manning the men, but like, she is like, she knows her place. She's a trainee. She's like in a very vulnerable position. She doesn't even have like a badge. She can't even be fired because she's not a real FBI agent. Like she could just be like expelled from the school and never get to work again. So I just love that she's, you know, regardless of her gender, like you never see like a trainee like in this kind of movie. And it makes it such a more interesting story that she's still learning about all this stuff. And she's got like these book smarts and that's what she's using because she's so close to like the like book learning of it all that she's like really like using everything she knows. And that's that's also a credit, I think, to the book because there's so many, many details about like what the FBI would actually do in this situation. Like it feels really real in a way that like hard these movies hardly ever feel that way. Yeah, it definitely feels like the like the real FBI. The FBI have only ever been heroes in history. <laughs> they only ever defend good people. And Chris, I agree with you. Like I love Clarice as a character and I and I do think like it goes to what Mike was talking about earlier like the difference between horror being running away from the scary bad thing and thriller being running toward the danger. And Clarice is that and she embodies that. And and I loved Again, like, I I love how vulnerable she chooses to get with Lecter because she knows that it's going to affect her and she knows that it is affecting her to do that. But she's also determined and ambitious. And that's that's not the only source of her power, but that's a big part of it. And yeah, it's like, I I think there are a lot of movies that rightly get kind of pigeonholed as like just propaganda for good cops or whatever. But I think think it's a movie that actually prizes and values Clarice Starling for like who she is and and her brain and not just for the fact that she wants to be like an agent and have a badge and a gun or whatever you know yeah and I love the way that this film builds empathy for the victim uh through Clarice so few of these movies you actually feel anything really for the (laughs) victim like they usually (laughs) want that person to be kind of disposable because you're supposed to like just have a good time and not not actually feel anything And they go through such effort to make her a real person and like her reactions when she's in the pit are very much more than just like, help me, please. She's like, fuck you, bitch. Get me out of here. (laughs) Yeah. But you feel that. We've all been there. 
feel that. To, to the extent of trying to take down that dog, trying to take down Buffalo Bill's dog and maybe kill it, maybe kill it. Poor Precious. But that's yeah. such another part of like Clarice's character is that she understands these victims. Like most of these movies are about like men trying to understand the killer. And this movie is about Clarice trying to understand the victims. And that's how she catches the killer by like understanding who the victims are. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I find that so interesting and that, that she's just like driven. It's it's in the book too. It's like she cares so much about like saving this one woman's life. And I think you really feel that in a way. And the examination scene where she's, you know, where they're, you know, taking the, the moth out of the woman's throat, but like the way that she reacts to that and is like barely holding herself together from crying, just so powerful. And it, like, we've seen that scene like a million times in, and it's usually like, you know, someone just like coldly speaking into the, the microphone and this is like the time where you actually feel like how sad it is that this woman went through this and died in this horrible way. And that's all like a big credit to, to Jodie Foster. Star-shaped contact entrance wound over the uh, sternum. A muzzle stamp at the top. Wrong for death. Wrong for death. She'll have to go to the state pathologist at Claxton. Well, I better get back to that service. Lamar will help you. Lord Almighty. What else do you see, Strong? Well... She's not local. Her ears are pierced three times, and there's a, a glitter nail polish. It looks like town to me. No one will be too surprised by the fact that I am ranking all my favorite Best Actress winners. <laughs> hmm. That doesn't sound like you. <laughs> Jodie Foster's number one, because I think like she's wow. just terrific in this movie. Like So perfectly cast, but just like the character she's playing gives her so much to do, too. So... Um, in 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 short, I, I I like it. I like her. She's good. It's a good movie. Is she good. Is she good she's enough good. to watch the new Paramount Plus Clarice show? Well, she's not in it. She's no. too good to watch that. We've not necessarily broadened the lens to be speaking comparatively of Silence of the Lambs and Thelma and Louise, but I do think it's notable that in 1991 we have these two extraordinarily polar different movies that both have extremely complex and like organic and fully realized and powerful female characters in them yeah and i think it's interesting that they both won the oscar because a film and louise is like the perfect original screenplay like it does something really bold and different and like kind of like creates a myth out of like thin air. And then this is like the perfect adaptation because it's like a great book and it just adapts it like so faithfully. And and like all the gender stuff is in the book. It's like an important part of it, but the way that it's visualized in this movie like elevates it so much. So it's like, yeah, this 1991 was like this perfect encapsulation of these two screenplay styles. I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that they both like, you know, have really strong roles for women as a way of, you know, like doing something that people hadn't seen before. I'm kind of surprised there's not more little girls in 1991 named Clarice. (laughs) (laughs) Or boys named Hannibal. Or boys named Hannibal. Or or Lecter. (laughs) Or Buffalo Bill. (laughs) Well, Silence of the Lambs, as I said, won five Oscars. Uh, None of them were for Precious the Dog, unfortunately. Are you telling me that it didn't win anything technical? I am telling you that. Um, (laughs) It won the big five awards and it won no other awards. (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. That's nuts. I mean, 
I guess sound, uh, visual oh, effects, not the, really. The sound was so good. Like The sound was great, but I feel the, like something um, probably showier got it. Such as uh, perhaps Terminator 2. Oh, oh no. It's oh, that checks 2? out. <laughs> okay. I forgot that Did was Did that, that win everything technical? Yeah, that won yeah. the second most Oscars of the night. Um, a lot of the technical awards... Bugsy and JFK each got two, as did Beauty and the Beast, both music-related. The supporting actor winners were Mercedes Rule for The Fisher King and Jack Palance for City Slickers. Oh, <laughs> is that when he did this, uh, the push-ups on stage? I imagine it was. That I think it was so, his only Oscar. Yeah, that's so. when he did a one-handed push-ups off stage. <laughs> <laughs> Great uh, Oscar memories. I, <laughs> I vaguely remember, remember that, but I, I think I've, I might need to watch a clip. At the Golden Globes in January earlier that year, Silence of the Lambs had lost Best Screenplay to Callie Curry for Thelma and Louise, Best Director to Oliver Stone for JFK, Best Actor to Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides, and Best Drama to Bugsy. So it only won for Jodie Foster at the Golden Globes. So it was expected to do like pretty well at the Oscars, but the complete sweep was a pretty big surprise. It remains like the only horror film to ever win Best Picture. You know, you can kind of debate if it's like actual, like straight up horror, but it's definitely like horror adjacent, I think. And it's a Halloween movie. Yeah, for sure. And it also has one of the longest gaps between its release and the Oscar wins. Like we were talking about, like 13 months. Well, we come now to the final award of the evening, the one for Best Picture. The five films nominated this year are so varied in their subject matter, dealing as they do with opposites attracting, criminals interacting, history in question, cannibal indigestion, and last but not least, a beauty and a beast. And here are the nominees for the best picture. I think it's kind of a like surprising winner. This is 1991. Like the the winners before this were Driving Miss Daisy and Dances with Wolves, and the next year would be Unforgiven. So I feel like JFK would have seemed like kind of like the obvious choice. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think in a normal world you would be like, oh, it's kind of like when Moonlight won, and you're but everybody was like, oh, La La Land's gonna win. Mm-hmm. Um, it like I think probably at the time people were like, oh, JFK is gonna go with it because. Oh, Silence of the Lambs is too horrific and it'll turn people off. But I guess what happened was that it's just an undeniably good movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins' performance is kind of notable for being the second shortest by screen time to win the Best Actor Award, hmm. following David Niven in 1958's Separate Tables. But it's actually the very shortest by percentage of screen time to the whole f- Films. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think that technically he really is like a supporting actor, but when if you, when your character is like that larger than life, like it's just actor, you know. Yeah, I agree. Like there are some people who are like really strict on screen time, and he's like he's in twenty five minutes of the movie, like which is like twenty one percent of the movie. But like when you think about like how much people are talking about him and like how like large the character looms over this movie. I agree. I think he like he has to be like in the leading category. This was also a great year for Jodie Foster because she directed her first movie, uh, Little Man Tate, the same year. So that's right. Yeah, she's she did a, well. She's got a long and storied directing career too. So since we've been talking so much about Best Actress, like we we kind of we gave the Oscar in the last episode to Gina Davis because we took Jodie out of the running. Do you guys think Jodie deserves the win? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Against who else? <laughs> 
<laughs> we, oh yeah, you weren't here for that one. I think he's a yes. Against Bette Midler. I mean, come on. <laughs> no. I'm gonna bet against Bette. How dare you? Oh, is that Rambling Rose? That weird, yep. <laughs> weird you got it. Dern pick? No, I gotta go ahead and skip that one. Thelma and Louise. Oh, both Thelma and Louise. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Didn't watch that. I was was doing grad school. Well, and again, another uh, what we learned in the previous episode, Mike, is that we're not allowed to choose multiples. We we mm-hmm. had to choose between Thelma and Louise. That's what Chris uh, made us do. It's this this so we picked awful Thelma. Sophie's choice of actresses. I am ruthless. You are. You are t- utterly without Ruth. Yeah. I mean, Jodie Foster so good. I I I think of her as Clarice. You know, she's just yeah. She's so good in this. I I can't think of her as. Oh, there's Jodie Foster. Like, I'm just like, that's Clarice Starling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I already kind of spoiled that I, she was my number one pick for Best Actress. So yeah, she gets, she gets the award for me, too. <laughs> ah, this has been such an incredible year. And um, I'd like to dedicate this award to all of the women who came before me who never had the chances that I've had and the survivors and the pioneers and the outcasts and my blood, my tradition. And I'd like to thank all of the people in this industry who have respected my choices and who have not been afraid of the power and the dignity that that entitled me to. And I'd like to thank Ted Talley and Thomas Harris, Jesse Gornbluth, everybody at Orion the way it used to be and the way it will always be in my heart. Uh, John Douglas and everybody at Quantico, uh, the incredible cast and crew of Silence and the Lambs uh, that Jonathan put together. And, of course, the reason that I'm here, yeah, Anthony Hopkins, quid pro quo doctor, and my guru, Jonathan Demi, not just for his talent, but for his goodness, I promise you. Overall, I thought this was kind of an interesting year at the Oscars. There was a, like a weird thing I noticed with the best pictures. Um, the Prince of Tide is also about psychology. It's a female psychologist getting into a man's psyche. Beauty and the Beast is a woman going to visit a monster. And even like Bugsy is about a good girl falling for a gangster. So I feel like this kind of dynamic was just like present in most of these best picture nominees, although not really JFK, unless there's like kind of an <laughs> FBI theme. Maybe Did going. a woman actually kill JFK? <laughs> maybe. No. Is that how that ties in? It was Buffalo Bill. That's his backstory. Is he tucking on the grassy knoll? <laughs> <laughs> no one noticed. Like somehow just like that went overlooked. Yeah, I feel like he would stick out, but who knows? And uh, just to note that, like, this cast is still making waves in award season. Anthony Hopkins is nominated uh, this year again for The Father. Uh, he's the oldest Best Actor nominee now. And he's great in The Father. Like, I honestly think he he deserves another Oscar. Um, I, I don't think he'll win, but um, he's really, like... He's really great in it. I've heard he's incredible. I am terrified to watch that movie (laughs) uh, because of the particular subject matter. But yeah, I mean, he's always been an incredible actor, but I feel like he's indistinguishable from this role, or at least was. Yeah, it's true. It's like, this is a really different mode for him. And like, I feel like a lot of times, like older actors get best actor nods just because they're like old legends. And but this is him like he's really bringing it to this role. Like it's it's definitely not like phoned in at all. He was also nominated last year mm-hmm. for the two popes, which was more of a phoned in role. I disagree. disagree. I he was good. He was good. Loved it. Um, and Jodie Foster just won a Golden Globe for the Mauritanian. So she's still still kicking too. Oh, good for her. 
Thomas Harris's characters are still very much a thing in pop culture and have been uh, pretty much ever since this movie was released, mainly the Hannibal Lecter character. He starred in Hannibal in 2001, Red Dragon in 2002, and Hannibal Rising in 2006. That would be the character Hannibal, not Anthony Hopkins, uh, who did not play young, teenage, hot Hannibal. Who did? Yeah, he's a French actor, Gaspard Uliel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I never saw that particular movie, but I did see the first couple sequels. I like Hannibal, I enjoy well. it too. I enjoy it too. I think hard pass. I hated that fucking movie. Well, okay. So the the book had like Hannibal and Clarice like running away together and falling in love. They did. They fell in love. And that seems like bonkers to me. Like I'm not That's interested crazy. in that. But the movie did it more interestingly. And uh, by the way, directed by Ridley Scott, who did Thelma and Louise. So it all comes full circle. It really does. Ooh. I think like it. You can't have anyone else play Clarice. Like, it just doesn't work. Like, Julianne Moore is a fantastic actress, but even she can't, like, make me believe that she's, like, Jodie Foster in this movie. So I wish that they had found a way to, like, maybe make her a different character or something. But, like, the movie, I think, is a really fun horror movie. It just, like, you can't view it as a sequel to Silence of the Lambs because it's, like, it's almost like a totally different genre. That's not, that's not fair. Yeah. There's there's a fun fun part where uh, Hannibal Lecter feeds a bad man his own brain. Yes, and it's Ray Liotta, fun. which is <laughs> oh that is that is Ray Liotta. Oh, Mister Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's like it's really like it's a little campier. It's more over the top, and it, but it's very like gruesome. So I don't know. I think it's a fun movie. Red Dragon, <sighs> I thought it was pretty solid too. Love Red. Yeah, Dragon. I enjoyed Red Dragon too. I enjoy it. Besides the fact that it's directed by Brett Ratner, right? Yeah. I know. Even like so. That. Unlikely. <laughs> I enjoy it. That's one of the many quotes that I use to bother my, my beautiful blushing bride. Which one? <laughs> this is Mrs. Leeds. Changed. Do you see? Ah. Coming. That's a it's an obscure reference. It is. It's <laughs> really it, it was not on the tip of my tongue, I'll put it that way. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, but I just I I love I love Red Dragon. It's so good. And uh, these characters have also come to TV, both of them. Hannibal uh, ran for three seasons on NBC, and Clarice just started on uh, CBS, so it's it's been one season. Some of you have watched Hannibal, right? Hannibal is one of my favorite shows of all time, of all time, of all time. Mm. There are multiple things to take from this episode. One is definitely watch Silence of the Lambs, because it's a great movie, but also you should watch the show Hannibal. Is it gross? It is one of the grossest things it's gross beyond imagination chris the gore is <laughs> artistic it, uh, operatic <laughs> artistic yeah that's good we often eat dinner like while watching tv <laughs> and me and mike like i could not eat dinner watching this show me yeah it's not a show to eat along with <laughs> Anthony Hopkins was the only person I could see playing Hannibal Lecter until I saw Mads Mikkelsen playing Hannibal Lecter. Unfortunately, they didn't get to do Clarice Starling because they only had three seasons. But they go through like the Red Dragon story and they go through a lot of the other parts of all of the Thomas Harris books about Lecter. 
and they add so much to each of those characters and they do kind of change some of the plot lines like of romance between Lecter and Starling like they change it over and they created a character for Gillian Anderson who's Hannibal's psychiatrist Mm. and their relationship has fucked up insane romantic undertones and overtones but is also like a series of Hannibal mind games that's just kind of one example like it's it was created by Brian Fuller the cast is insanely great and stacked i really enjoy it i can absolutely see why many people would not want to watch that series Mm -hmm. but if you enjoy silence of the lambs and if you can stand artful gore (laughs) i really recommend that because that's now my favorite like iteration of lector and that universe I really enjoyed the first season and then we started getting into the second season and the soundtrack (laughs) to the second season of Hannibal is so garishly jarring that it made it impossible to watch. Oh yeah, it's it's soundtracked by nightmare music. (laughs) It's awful. Like it just like it it makes no sense in the space of it. It's needles and knives and it's poking you and it's and it's over the dialogue. It's horrible. Whoever did the dialogue for that needs to needs to be spoken yeah the mixing is crazy sometimes especially if you're on a surround system because it's not mixed properly for that the rest of the show was 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 interesting the artsiness of it like the guy that played will graham the lawrence fish larry fish paste whatever his name is I'm not over Larry Fishface. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm not over Larry Fishface. We need to put some more respect <laughs> on Lawrence Fishburne's name. I'm sorry. <laughs> the gore didn't bother me, honestly. It was cool. I thought it was interesting. Okay. Mads Mikkelsen is he's fine as Hannibal, but honestly, it was the soundtrack that killed my interest in the show. Chris, what about you? Have you seen it? Nope. It sounds gross. It's good. I don't Check know. I, I wanted to for a while, but like the more I hear about it, the more I'm like, mm, gross. <laughs> Maybe someday. If you can handle gore, watch Hannibal. It's amazing. And I can't believe it was on broadcast television. That's nuts. I can't. Yeah. (laughs) It was on NBC. Have the Oscars stopped screaming? That's all the quid we have time to pro-quo on this episode of When We Were Young. (laughs) On our next episodes... We'll be taking a look back at the 2001 movie Spectacular, Moulin Rouge, <laughs> as well as the 1996 film Romeo and Juliet, both directed by Baz Luhrmann. So join us on the next episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and leave us a review of five stars or more so that more people hear the show. I've been Seth. I'm Becky. I'm Mike. Or am I? And I love your suit. Love the suit. Now everybody do an impression. Love the suit. (laughs) That's too Maya Angelou. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, horses. I'm coming over you.